You're listening to a podcast with Father Chris Walsh. This week's lesson, Jesus Part 2. We, we started last week looking at, at Jesus um, and, and sort of just some of the, the bigger issues, but today we're going to get into some of the like first part of his life, and then, and then next week uh, we'll do uh, Jesus. So this is Jesus 202, and then next week will be Jesus 303. I was in that college uh, mindset so that we can... Uh, we can look at it. And the first thing I just want to say is, is, is the power of even Jesus' name. And there's some references to this in Scripture where they say, you know, at the, actually they sang today at the Mass, at the name of Jesus, every, every knee bends, every head shall bow. But, but even in our own lives. Um, I remember I, I worked um, for a while with, with emotionally disturbed kids, and it was a locked facility, and and we ran into some really dark stuff with some of the kids. And, but there was this guy I worked with who was, who was a Christian. And, and it was really neat because sometimes we'd be sitting there and, and I could see that he was praying. I'd be like, what are, you, what are you saying? And he would say, I'm just saying the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. He goes, you know, there's a goodness in this child, and I know, but, but, but the dark spirits. And so I just say the name of Jesus. And from that point on, and that was probably, gosh, almost 20 years ago, um, just whenever I, I feel myself just filled with anxiety, mm-hmm. You know, or, you know, you kind of sometimes sense that, that feeling of darkness sometimes around you, even sometimes, sadly, some people, just to say the name of Jesus. Like, we don't have to, like, get into elaborate prayers, but just calling on the name of Jesus. And just simply, it's another way of praying, even if you're not in a dark place, but just that, that maybe that spirit of depression or, or, or whatever is coming over you, just to sit and say the name of Jesus over and over again. It's actually a very popular tradition in the Orthodox Church. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, um, to just simply say the name of Jesus over and over and over again uh, as one is walking. So just throw that out to you for your own uh, spiritual life. So next week we begin the, the, the season of Advent. Did we talk about that at all already? No. Okay. So I'm sure we'll pick up on that a little bit next week. But uh, when you go into church next week, you'll, things will look different. Uh, instead of the green or the white that we've been wearing, we'll be wearing what color? Purple. Uh, the purple of Advent. Purple is a penitential color because uh, Advent is actually a season of penance. Penance at Advent and at Lent. So, and you'll see a wreath uh, with four candles, three purple and one pink candles. That becomes the Advent wreath. That's a tradition that actually the Catholics stole from the Lutherans. Uh, it's actually a Lutheran tradition. Uh, from the 1600s in the north of Germany. And actually, the Lutherans stole it from really like the native religions. Mm-hmm. Um, this custom of during the darkness of winter, bringing in some, some greens from outside as a sign of life. The idea of, although it's depressing, and, and, and again, think about it, like if you're a farmer, like the wintertime can really be depressing. Like you're not working outside, there's not a whole lot to do. It's cold. Your whole family's probably cramped into the one room where the heater was, you know. So it can really probably be very difficult. And so they would bring in some greens, just the fragrance, the smell helps, um, you know, and, and so you'll notice that. And our whole, the next four weeks, will be focused on preparing for Jesus. So it's kind of nice that we're having this conversation uh, now. And I'm just going to kind of go through this, uh, not quickly, but... But, but thoroughly. And so we say in the creed that Jesus, and we picked up on this a little bit last week, Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so with that enunciation, Mary, this young Jewish girl, um, 
and the angel Gabriel says, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. You know, the God, you are the highly favored one, and God wants to overshadow you and allow you to conceive. And Mary does question, how is this possible? I mean, I think if any of us had an angel appear to us, we might say, hey, what's going on here? And so uh, Mary does question, but she questions in faith. There's nothing wrong with questioning. There's nothing wrong with saying to God, God, what's going on here? As long as we question with faith, knowing that God does have an answer, that God does have a way. When, when the angel explains what's going to happen, Mary says yes. And that yes is important because Mary's acting in freedom. You know, this is not being forced on Mary. Mary's acting in freedom. So she says yes. Um, and, and again, from the early church fathers, the beautiful line that she conceived first in her heart, that she believed in her heart, and then she was able to conceive in her womb. That's how she became pregnant. So this is by God's power. She, she has nine months of pregnancy. She carries Jesus like, like any woman would carry her baby, although this was a miraculous conception. Everything else is pretty normal. You know, so Mary, uh, those of you who have given birth, you can identify Mary would have had morning sickness probably and, 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 and weird cravings and her back would have hurt and, and all of these different beautiful things. I'm not sure if anyone has seen um, the movie The Nativity, um, but there's a beautiful scene in that where uh, they're going off to the census, they're going off to Bethlehem, and Joseph is sort of helping Mary up on the donkey, you know, because she's tired. And of course, as they're leaving, all the neighbors are like chattering, like, oh, there she is pregnant, and they're not living together, what's going on? And they're gossiping, and there's a great line, because the character who's playing Joseph says to Mary, oh, I guess they're really going to miss us, aren't they? You know, sort of this, this humor. Mary and Joseph loved each other again. Although their, their relationship was not normal, as we would understand it, there was still that love that was definitely there. We say that Mary, or Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And just to mention about her, just in a few weeks we'll celebrate on December 8th what's called the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception points to the conception of Mary. The Immaculate Conception is not when Mary conceived Jesus, but when Mary was conceived within the womb of her parents, St. Joachim and St. Anne. Conceived in a normal way. Okay, Mary's parents, you know, had relations in a normal way and conceived her normally. The difference is that God preserved Mary from original sin. God stepped in. And again, this is hard for us to imagine because it's so out of time. But God steps in and applies the grace that Christ is going to win on the cross 30-some years later. Like actually, probably more than that, 60 years later, you know, because Mary's a child. Um, and, and applies it back to that moment so that Mary is free of sin. That's the one thing that makes Mary different from us, um, in that she was born without sin. Now, once we have been baptized, we're on the same par, because then we're free of sin as well. So Mary is conceived without sin, um, and the church has always said that Mary is, is always a virgin. They talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary was a virgin before uh, during and after the birth of Christ, so that she didn't have relations with other people. We'll eventually talk about, well, in the Bible it says that she has brothers and sisters, while well, it's cousins or other loose relatives, the term that is used there in the context in which it's used. The reasons why it's important that we, that we hold up Mary as a virgin are twofold. One, the idea that um, you know, if, she, if there was other children or, or maybe she did have relations with Joseph or others, well, that calls into the question who the father of Jesus is, that we want it very clear that the father of Jesus is God, that, that that's what makes Jesus so unique. 
The other part on a more spiritual, theological level is that Mary becomes a symbol of the church. And that since the church is only focused on Jesus, we want Mary only focused on Jesus. So, so that's the two aspects there. Eventually we'll talk more about Mary, but just as we're going through the life of Christ, I thought it was important that we put that out there. He's born in the manger. Um, the simplicity of that, which we'll talk about as we get to Christmas. Early on, the first thing that happens, the first two pe- groups of people that come to visit Jesus, the shepherds and the magi. Two groups of people that were total outcasts. The shepherds were all seen as nuts. These guys slept out in the field with sheep and goats. You know, they, they were the, 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 the throwaways of society. And God wants them to come adore first. The magi, in a sense, also. Um, they're, they're representing the outsiders also. They're not Jews. They're not even Greeks. Scholars tell us they were probably from Persia, what is today uh, Iraq. Okay, they're, they're from that part of the world that we see as our enemies, is, is where these, these magi come from. They were astronomers. They studied the stars. And there's all sorts of evidence as to what the star they were looking at. But anyway, they come. So these first two groups are outsiders, are outsiders, showing us from the very beginning that the Christ's message was going to be different than what people thought. Very soon after he's born, Herod, in his jealousy, wants him killed. He hears that there's a newborn king, and Herod can't handle any competition. And so he um, threatens that he's going to kill all children, all male children, under the age of three. Now, anyone want to take a guess as to how many children were slaughtered by Herod? Take a guess. Thousand. Anyone else take a guess? Ten thousand. Ten thousand. How about 25 children? It was a small number. That's a lot. I mean, the slaughter of any child is a lot. But we hear about the slaughter of the innocents. We think it's so many children. But again, it's a small area. It's a small area. Um, we're only talking about the, the, the male children being born. It was a village. So not a humongous number of people. Any child, again, is, is too many. But probably 25 or 30 children slaughtered because of Christ's birth. Mary and Joseph had fled with him, though, into Egypt. Um, and so, again, I always used to, this was always a trick question when I taught high school on the, um, you know, which continents did Christ visit in his lifetime? And the kids would always say, you know, he was in Asia because he spent his life in the Middle East. And I would say, you know, either you know, any other continents, they say no. And I said, well, sorry, he was in Africa. You know, Christ was in Africa when he went into Egypt there. Um, but again, that experience of persecution from the very beginning, that Christ is sent out. He's, he, he, he's able to identify with people who have to leave their homes for different reasons from exiles and from refugees uh, in today's world, those who are persecuted, especially for their faith. Uh, His life becomes hidden. We're told that he goes back uh, to Galilee. He grows. The next time we see Jesus is the the finding of the temple where he's teaching. He's taken on this role. Again, not an unheard of thing for a 12-year-old to get up and teach. It's actually what happened, as we said, at a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, where a, a Jewish child would get up and teach. So teaching at the age of 12 or 13, you know, wasn't unheard of. But what made it different was that Jesus did it with such authority. Such authority coming, and, and others recognized that. As a child, I, I skipped over, there was the presentation in the temple where Mary and Joseph would have brought him up and made the offering. It's one of the ways that we know that Joseph and Mary were poor because they offered turtle doves. 
They didn't offer the, the goats and rams that the wealthier would have offered. They weren't destitute, though. Uh, since Joseph was a carpenter and he owned his own tools, you know, they were working poor. They were the working poor, like most of us. Um, when he's presented in the temple, it's also when he undergoes circumcision. A beautiful insight on St. Joseph here. It was the custom that the Jewish father was the one who publicly announced the name of the child. So it would have been Joseph who said, we name him Jesus. Uh, it also possibly could have been Joseph who performed the circumcision. Uh, so it was Joseph who perhaps first offered uh, the blood of Jesus. Uh, and that's a beautiful reflection that sometimes people give on the, the priesthood of Joseph. The idea that Joseph is shedding the blood of Jesus and offering that to the Father. The circumcision is what makes him part of the Jewish covenant. That circumcision identifies him as a child of the covenant, the people that he came to save. And then he goes down into that hidden life in Galilee. And there's something beautiful about that. He lives just the normal life, what, what we live every day. You know, washing dishes, cleaning his clothes, doing his chores, going to school, those regular things of life, that there's holiness in them, that, that we don't have to always be doing extraordinary things. But as St. Teresa of Lisieux, the small things with great love, the holiness of the ordinary. 30 years later, you know, he begins a public ministry. Why at 30? There's lots of different ideas out there as to why, but he obviously knew it was time. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things we just don't know why. You know, why did some of you show up at this group this year? I don't know. It's just God moved your heart and you were ready. So, so but at the age of 30, Jesus begins his public ministry. And the first thing that he undergoes is his baptism. Now, his baptism is different than our baptism. He doesn't need to be baptized to be forgiven sin because he doesn't have any sin. He does it to identify with us. He does it to identify with us. That that's his whole mission, is identifying with us. Um, so he goes down in that beautiful scene, and we'll be talking about that in the weeks ahead during the Christmas season. But the clouds open up, and an angel descends, and he hears the words, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, or with whom I am well pleased. So the Father uh, definitely showing that. And again, a manifestation of the Trinity. Jesus being baptized, the Father speaking, the, the Holy Spirit present there. Immediately after the baptism, though, immediately after him, him realizing this public ministry, he's sent into the desert to undergo temptation. And, and there's three different temptations, but really they all come down to the same thing, for him to violate his Father's plan, for him to go against what God wants. And that's what all temptation is. You know, in our life, you know, I'm never tempted to be kind. That's not a temptation, right? <laughs> you know, I'm not tempted to be generous, right? And, and sometimes you hear people use those terms like, no, a temptation by its nature is something that pulls us away from God, pulls us away from what is good, pulls us away from right. But Jesus rejects the temptation. He rejects the temptation, despite what that movie back in the 80s, The Last Temptation of Christ, tried to say. He begins walking around, and as I said during the homily today, proclaiming the kingdom, you know, announcing that it was going to be different, that the world that he wanted to create, that the Father wanted, was different. And, and, he, and he brought healing to the sick, and recovery of sight to the blind, and, and dignity to, to sinners, and, and dignity to the people who had been thrown away. He, he pulled people together, and he invited them to come join him. You know? and, uh, and that's why we're here, because we were invited as well. He performed miracles during those public ministries. 
And the miracles were all done for two reasons, I always say. One, because it drew a crowd. <laughs> you know, if you hear some guys turning water into wine, you want to go hang out with this guy. You know, if you find out that these people that were crippled are now walking, what's the story here? You know, it draws a crowd. People, it gets people's attention, right? That's happening today. Um, you know, in many new mission countries, we say it's accompanied by signs and wonders. You know, and this was, I'd say, 20 years ago when Africa was first being evangelized in a big way. Some powerful signs and wonders of miraculous healings, of people's lives being changed, the cessation of addiction, you know, happening. Miracles, miracles, because they, they bring a, a power to the word, you know. But the second thing was it was showing that the power does, does move through him. The power moved through him. Even today when we pray to, to saints for miracles, we're really just asking the saint to ask Christ to do the miracle. Right? It's always God. It's always God. It's never the saint. It's never the saint who's doing it. During his life, again, there was only really a few occasions where this, the, 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 the reality of his divinity came through. And one was the transfiguration. He went up to the Mount Tabor and, and with, with Moses or with Peter and John. And there he was transfigured, and, and Moses and Elijah appeared next to him. It was at a time when the disciples were getting ready to go to Jerusalem where there was going to be the cross, and he knew it was going to be tough for them. He knew they were going to be scared, and so he kind of allowed them to have this, this moment of glory to help them through the days that were going to come that would be difficult. His whole life, and, and next week we'll pick up on the passion, the suffering, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension, that sort of final part of his life. Um, but, but the whole life is all about revealing the Father. And we had said that we talked about the Trinity. The Holy Spirit comes to make Jesus present. Jesus comes to draw us to the Father. Once we're with the Father, we're perfectly happy. So enough on Jesus 202, and we look forward to Jesus 303. This has been another podcast with Father Chris Walsh.